All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. I want to welcome everybody joining us online, wherever you might be. Thanks for tuning in. If you got a Bible, I want you to grab it. I want you to go with me to the Gospel of Matthew and the 23rd chapter. Open your Bible this morning to Matthew chapter 23. If you're a guest, thanks for being with us. I want you to know that we have been working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew in a sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus since November of 2016. We've taken some breaks along the way, but we've made a lot of progress and we have learned, at least I have, I hope you have, a lot about Jesus. When we open up our Bibles to Matthew 23 this morning, it's Wednesday on the final week of Jesus' life. And Jesus spends a large part of the day toe-to-toe with the religious leaders. It begins when they confront Him while He's teaching in the temple. They've been angry with Him for a long time, but they're especially angry with Him now because just the day before, Jesus went into the temple, the very temple that He's teaching in on Wednesday, and He cleared it. He cleansed it. He drove out all those who were there who were buying and selling. He He was just so angry and upset and discouraged by what He saw. He drove them out of the temple, and that made them furious because that was an affront to them. It was an assault on their religious leadership, and they were just furious. And so, they come to the temple to demand Jesus tell them where He gets the authority to do the things that He does, and Jesus doesn't answer the question. Instead, Jesus asks them His own question. He says, if you answer my question, then I'll answer yours, and He asks them a question. We read this at the very end of Matthew chapter 21, and They didn't even try to answer the question. They didn't think it was in their best interest to even try to answer the question, and so they gave no answer. And though they came to confront Jesus in the temple, what happens next is Jesus turns the tables on them and He confronts them. And He confronts them by sharing three parables, serious, sobering parables of judgment that are aimed directly at them. And now, friends, they're not just angry. They are absolutely furious because they know that Jesus is talking about them. And so what do they do? Well, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 15 says they huddle together and they decide that they're going to come up with a plan to try to trap Jesus in His words. What they really want to do is arrest Him. They want to arrest Him and they want to just remove Him. They just want to take Him out of circulation, but they're afraid to do that because the crowd around views Jesus as a prophet and they don't know how the crowd will react. And so they come up with this plan to try to trap Jesus with His words. And so what happens next is three different groups of religious leaders approach Jesus with three different questions intended to trap Him. The first was a question about paying taxes. The second was a question about marriage at the resurrection. And the third was a question about which of the commandments was the greatest commandment. And the only way I can describe what happens next is Jesus absolutely crushes each one of those questions. I mean, He crushes them. It's incredible. And that's where we left off last week. What happens next is at the end of Matthew chapter 22, Jesus turns to those Pharisees and He asks them His own question that they can't answer. And that takes us to the beginning of chapter 23. And in chapter 23, Jesus turns to the crowd and He unleashes a scathing indictment on the hypocrisy of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And He basically tells the crowd that these men are nothing more than a bunch of religious frauds. That's what He says about them. And then, seven different times throughout the course of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus basically addresses these religious leaders with the words, woe 
to you. And let me tell you, friends, of all the things that you might want Jesus to say to you, that you might want to hear coming from the mouth of Jesus one day, at the very bottom of the list would be the words, woe to you, because the word woe in the Bible is a word of warning and a word of judgment. It's serious and sobering. And so here's what we're going to do today. We've got our Bibles open to Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to ask you to bookmark that in your Bible, and I'm going to ask you to go home and read that this morning, this afternoon, sometime during the day. And when you get to the end, I want you to reread verses 37 through 39 multiple times because I want you to see that even though this chapter contains the harshest and the sharpest words Jesus ever speaks to anyone, at the end of the chapter, you still see the compassionate heart of Jesus for the people that He came to save. And so I want you to do that for me because I'm not going to preach from Matthew chapter 23 today. Instead, I'm going to share something different. But before I do, I'm going to ask you to bow with me for a very brief prayer. Let's all bow our heads together. Father in heaven, I pray today for your presence and for your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite times of the week is just a couple of hours away. It's Sunday lunch. It's my favorite time of the week probably because it's the end of a long weekend for me. Preaching Saturday night and three times on Sunday morning can be exhausting. And also because my entire family is together at lunch almost every Sunday. Last week, once Sandy got all the food on the table, I called my oldest grandson, Jack. I think we have a picture of him we'll put up on the screen. I called my oldest grandson, Jack, who's five years old, to come and stand by me at the head of the table. And I put my arm around him. I said, Jack, will you pray for our lunch? Because Jack loves to pray. He's the one who always volunteers to pray. When you're in class and the teacher says, who'll pray? Jack raises his hand. When you're at the soccer game and it's before the game begins and the uh, referee says, who'll pray for our soccer game today? Jack always raises his hand. He loves to pray. And so he bowed his head next to me, and this is what he said. He said, dear God, thank you for this day. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. And I, I'm sure, along with the rest of my family sitting at the table, expected that he was going to say something specific after he said, please help us, because there was a long pause there. But in the end, I guess he thought better of it as he was running through the options in his little five-year-old mind. And he just said, please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. And I thought to myself, what a perfect prayer. In fact, I said it out loud. What a perfect prayer. That's especially true if you ever find yourself struggling with prayer, which honestly is where we can find ourselves at times. In the last chapter of the book of James in the New Testament, the fifth chapter, and James is a very practical book, and in the fifth chapter, he's wrapping everything up in a very matter-of-fact way, in a very common-sense way. James writes in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, these words about prayer. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And it all sounds so simple. James writes and says, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. You wouldn't think that would be hard to do, but sometimes it is. There are times when we struggle to pray. To be honest, I'm living in one of those times in my personal life right now, and while I'm sure there are a number of different reasons why, if I wanted to sit down and make a long list, I think they could probably all be summoned up 
or summed up rather with the single word, disappointment. You ever feel disappointed in your life? Disappointment in circumstances, disappointment in life, disappointment with people, disappointment in myself, disappointment sometimes even with God. As blasphemous as that sounds to say, I'm never disappointed in the character of God. And when I say disappointment with God, that says a whole lot more about me than it does about God. In fact, that's all about me. That's not about God. Because what that means is in my finite, limited, weak, fallible mind, I oftentimes struggle to understand how God chooses to exercise his sovereignty in the world. And I wonder why God allows certain things to happen and why there are times that scream for the involvement of God and he seems to be silent. Why he doesn't move, why he doesn't work in certain lives and in certain circumstances. But I don't like not being able to pray. And so what I did to try to find my personal prayer voice is two things. First, I put together what I call my I don't know how to pray prayer guide. And I just sat down and I wrote out eight things. And with each one of the things that I wrote out, which was related to a prayer, I found a verse or verses from the book of Psalms to read, or in other words, verses from the book of Psalms to pray. When I don't know how to pray, prayer guide, I pray the words of God. For example, uh, my list is this. When I want to praise God, Psalm 70 and verse 4. When I need to confess my sin, Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. When I need a better attitude, Psalm 19 and verse 14. When I'm sad and brokenhearted, Psalm 34, verses 17 and 18. When I'm facing temptation, Psalm 61, verses 2 and 3. When I need to refocus my life, Psalm 51, 10. When I need guidance, Psalm 25, 4. And when I I need to seek and understand the will of God, Psalm 143, verse 10. And I read or pray those verses every day, sometimes multiple times a day, some of them more than others. For example, the third thing on my list is when I need a better attitude, and my, my attitude has been terrible lately. You ever had a season where you had a bad attitude? You live in there today? And so Psalm 19 and verse 14, this is my psalm for when I need a better attitude. It says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, everything flows from the heart. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's my praying for a better attitude verse. And I pray those at some point every day because I need all of those things, at least on some level in my life every day. The second thing I did was I began to read and study different prayers in the Bible. So let me ask you to do something for me today. If you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 23 still, you haven't closed it, then let me hear your pages turning over to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. That's the second book of the Bible. And let me hear your pages turning to Exodus chapter 33. Turn there with me this morning, Exodus chapter 33. Exodus is filled with a lot of information, not the least of which is the story of how God used Moses to rescue, to rescue the Israelites from Egypt when they were slaves in Egypt. And surely, most all of us who are here this morning or watching online at least know some part of that story, maybe if only because we watched the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. They still show that every year. We know something about that story. Or maybe when your children were little, you watched the Disney movie The Prince of Egypt. But surely all of us knows about Moses as God's great deliverer and how 
God sent Moses to Egypt, actually back to Egypt to rescue his people. Remember how all that happened? There's a man named Joseph that we meet in Genesis chapter 37, and he had a father named Jacob who had many sons, and of all his sons, Joseph was his favorite. I grew up living that experience in my life. How about you? You have brothers and sisters. My brothers and sisters were very jealous of me when I was growing up as well. But their jealousy overflowed one day until they couldn't stand it anymore, and so they took their brother Joseph and they sold him to a caravan of Ishmaelites who were on their way to Egypt, and he was carted off to Egypt probably just as a teenage boy. He went back and they told their father that he had been killed, and Joseph spent the rest of his life in Egypt. But because the providential hand of God was on him, Joseph rose to a position of great power and authority in Egypt. God had a plan for him. And when there was a famine in the land, years later, Joseph's brothers came to Egypt to buy food. And Joseph recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. And through a course of events, Joseph eventually revealed himself to his brothers. And in his grace, he forgave them for what they had done. And he brought his entire family, all of them, to live in Egypt. And that's where they were. Joseph's story ends when the book of Genesis ends in Genesis chapter 50. You turn the page and you get to Exodus chapter 1, and beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says, Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. That's verses 6 and 7. Listen to what verse 8 says. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. There's a new Pharaoh in Egypt. He didn't know who Joseph was. He didn't know how Joseph had rescued the people of Egypt years ago. He didn't know anything about that. And so he just looked out and said, there's so many Israelites, we got to get them under control. And the only way he could think to do that was to make them slaves. And they were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years until God heard their prayer, heard their cry, and sent Moses back to Egypt, if you know his story, to rescue them. And friends, I can't imagine anyone facing a more difficult leadership challenge than the one Moses did as he led those Israelites, at this point about a million of them, out of Egypt on the way to the promised land. It must have felt like to him every time he turned around, they were either rebelling or complaining because that's the reality of the situation. The low point came when they camped at the foot of Mount Sinai in the desert of Sinai, and Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God, but he was gone longer than the people expected. And so while he was gone, they reverted back to their old carnal ways. And when Moses came down off of the mountain and he was carrying the Ten Commandments, he'd been in the presence of God. He found the Israelites in a riotous party worshiping a golden calf. And he must have been thinking to himself, how am I going to lead these people to the promised land? Because they're either going to kill me or I'm going to kill them. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 33. In the first six verses of Exodus 33, God tells Moses to go ahead and lead the Israelites to the promised land. God even says to Moses, I'm going to send an angel ahead of you, and I'm going to get rid of all the enemies that you may encounter on the way or that you might encounter there. But then God says this in the latter part of verse 3, Exodus 33 and verse 3. He says to Moses, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Do you think God ever wants to say the same thing to us? And so Moses goes back and he tells the Israelites what God has said. And when he tells the Israelites that God was not going to go with them, they begin to mourn. And when the Israelites begin to mourn, Moses begins to pray. And so if you've got your Bibles open to Exodus 33 and you're able this morning, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. And I'm going to read 
Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 7 down to verse 17. You follow along. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance, entrances rather to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshiped, each at the entrance to his tent. And then Moses, excuse me, then the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And then Moses would return to the camp. But the young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. And Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence, note there in your Bible that the word presence is capitalized. Do you see that? My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence, capitalized again, does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. All right, there it is. You can be seated. Every week we ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. There are three things that I've written down that we can learn from Moses about prayer. You notice that there's just a blank insert in your bulletin this morning. This is probably not the most noteworthy sermon you've ever heard. It might be a weekend just to sit back and listen, but you do what you want to do. The first thing we learn is this. Moses had a place where he prayed. He had a place where he met with God. It was called the tent of meeting, and it was away from the busyness of the Israelite camp. And when Moses entered the tent to meet with God, the Bible says that God entered the tent to meet with Moses. In verse 9, it says that when Moses entered the tent, a pillar of cloud would come down outside the entrance to the tent, and the pillar of cloud was the manifestation of the presence of God. If you know the story of Moses leading the Israelites, you know back in, in Exodus chapter 13, when he led them out of the land, the Bible says that God went before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of, fly, of fire by night, and that pillar of cloud at the entrance to the tent of meeting was the manifestation of the presence of God. And here's what we learn or take away from Moses' prayer life. Moses understood that God is willing and available to meet with us when we make time to meet with him. And so Moses had a place where he met with God. That's number one. The second thing we learn is that Moses' prayers were personal. I'm going to put the first part of Exodus 33 and 11 on the screen. You can look at it. This describes what happened when Moses went to meet with God in the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now that word or that phrase face to face is a metaphor that means that when Moses met with God to pray, it was very personal. No one can see the face of God. In fact, in Exodus, just a little bit further from where we are in chapter 33, God literally says, no one can see my face and survive. What this means is that when Moses and God met, when Moses prayed that it was straightforward and honest communication. Nothing was hidden. God, Moses did not measure his words. He spoke what was on his mind and his heart. You see that in verses 12 and 13. 
He says, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Moses didn't hold anything back from God. First of all, he shared his frustration. You're saying you're going to lead me. Now give me the rest of the story because I can't do this alone. I can't do this on my own. And then he, showed, then he shared with God his deepest desire. He said, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. And that's Moses' way of saying to God, listen, God, as good as this is, here we are in the tent of meeting. I'm with you. Your presence, the manifestation of your presence is at the entrance of the tent. It's just you and me. As good as this is, I need more. Have you ever felt in your life of faith like you wanted and needed more from God? That surely there must be more than what you're experiencing in the moment? Moses said, I need more. The third thing we learn about prayer from Moses is Moses prayed for the presence of God. That was his prayer. He prayed for the presence, capital P, presence of God. And when I see that, when I read these words, what stands out to me is that Moses didn't just want the presence of God. Moses needed the presence of God. He needed it in his life. And so in Exodus thirty-three fourteen, God answers Moses' prayer by saying, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And that's what Moses was looking for, but he was so focused on this that even though God said, my presence will go with you, Moses doubles down and says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? That's verses 15 and 16. And so God, Moses doubles down with God and God doubles down with Moses. And he reiterates the promise in verse 17. He says, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And here's the conclusion I come to when I read that exchange. And you probably should write this down somewhere. God's presence is the mark of his pleasure. God's presence in our lives, in our church, in our families, in our work, in whatever we do, his presence is the mark of his pleasure. Because this is what God said to Moses. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and look at verses 14 through 17, but I'm going to put them in my own words this time. This is what God said to Moses. I'm going to go forward with you in a clear and a distinctive way. And your life and your leadership are going to be different as a result because you... Moses, you are pleasing to me. What would you be willing to do to hear those words from God? What would you be willing to do? What would I be willing to do to hear God say, I'm going to go with you. Your life is going to be different because you 
are pleasing to me. What would we be, what would we be willing to do to hear those words from God? In verse 14, when God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, when I read that, I was captured by that word rest. I thought to myself, what does that mean exactly? I mean, beyond, does it mean just, sometimes the word just means what it means. And so I looked at it in the original language of the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew language. It's the Hebrew word noah. And when I studied the word, I found, honestly, that the way my NIV Bible translates it as rest is a great translation, but I also found that it can be translated settled. And so when God says to Moses, you're going to experience my rest, he's saying, you're going to feel settled. And that's something I guarantee you Moses did not feel in his life as he was leading this rebellious group of Israelites to the promised land. He didn't feel settled when he came down off the mountain and found them worshiping a golden calf. Do you feel settled in your life today? Do you feel settled living in the midst of a sinful fallen world that seems to get worse with every passing day? You feel settled with all that happens around us? Do you feel settled in the depth and the level of your Christian commitment? I mean, when you read in the scriptures and Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. Do you feel settled that that describes the level of your commitment to Christ and where he falls on the priority list of your life? Do you feel settled in your personal relationship with God? I feel settled in my salvation. I can say that without doubt this morning. I understand the gospel, the gospel, the word gospel in our New Testament comes from the Greek word euangelion. It means the good news about Jesus, the redeeming message of Jesus, the truth that Jesus came to the world, that he died on the cross in our place, that he rose from the dead. And if we put our faith and trust in him, our sin can be forgiven and we can live in a right relationship with God. I am settled in the fact that I completely understand that. And I put my faith and trust in Christ. I know that's the only way to have my sin forgiven. I know that's the only way that I can live in a right relationship with God. I feel settled in my salvation. I can stand up here this morning and I can say that for sure that I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven whether it happens tomorrow or 10 years from now or 30 years from now, I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm settled in that. I rest in that assurance. I hope you can say the same thing. But I don't always feel settled when it comes to knowing and experiencing the presence and the pleasure of God in my life. I don't feel settled in that today. And I feel compelled to say that this morning. I feel compelled to that level of honesty today. When I come in here to preach, I have spent almost an entire week with the text that I'm teaching, whatever it might be. And then as I spend time with that text, I experience God. I experience the truth about God. I experience truth related to God. And it becomes very personal to me. And so I feel compelled to share what I have learned when I come in here on the weekend, even if it's a painful truth about myself. Because I think, you know, if I feel this way, maybe some of you do as well. And maybe that's what God wants. He wants me to share that with you. He wants us to be honest about that together. 
This past week, I read this quote. It captured my attention. It said, those who have a high view of Scripture must not settle for a low experience of Scripture. Those who have a high view of Scripture must not settle for a low experience of Scripture. What do you think that means? Well, that means if we say that we love God's Word, that we treasure God's Word, that we cherish God's Word, these are all the things that the Bible instructs us to feel about it. If we say that, but we don't let it get inside of our lives, we don't let it challenge us or change us or convict us, then we're just lying. We're liars. We might love God's Word in the sense that we hold this book up as some kind of an idol, but this is not an idol. This is the book of life. This is the revelation of God. And if we have a high view of it, then it needs to be inside of us and it needs to challenge us and change us every day and it needs to redirect our lives when we are going the wrong direction. It needs to cause us to repent and ask God for forgiveness when our lives are filled with things that it shouldn't be filled with. That's what it means to have a high experience with Scripture. And reading and studying this particular prayer of Moses makes me painfully aware of the truth that there's something lacking in my life, at least right now in this moment, and it's the presence and the pleasure of God. I'm not feeling settled the way that I should be. And again, maybe you... Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe that's the nagging feeling that you have in your life, the nagging sense of dissatisfaction you have in your life but that you haven't been able to diagnose or put your finger on. Are you settled with regard to the presence and the pleasure of God in your life? God told Moses to go ahead and lead the Israelites to the promised land. He said, I'm not going to go with you. And Moses said, listen, if your presence does not go with us, then do not send us up from here. In other words, Moses said to God, if I, he said, I'm not going to take another step in my life without the manifest presence of God, without your presence in my life. Why? Because living without the manifest presence in, of God in our lives can be summed up by one single word. You know what it is? Disappointment. And there's no rest. There's no feeling settled when you're filled with disappointment. And so let me just go back to the question we asked him a few moments ago. And this is how we'll close. Brian can come and we'll prepare to close. A little earlier, I was summarizing Exodus 33, verses 14 through 17. I put what God said to Moses into my own words, and this is what I said. God told Moses... I'm going to go forward with you in a clear and a distinctive way. Your life, your leadership are going to be different because you are pleasing to me. And so the question would be, do you sense that that's God's word for your life today? And if not, what would you be willing to do to hear those words from God? What do you need to do? What do I need to do? What do we need to do to hear those words from God? I'm going to go with you. I'm going to walk with you. Your life is going to be different because I'm pleased with you. What are we willing to do to hear those words from God? Let me give you some theology to close from the mind of my five-year-old grandson, Jack. This is where it starts. We pray, and it's as simple as this. Dear God, 
Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.